Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and I'm sitting here recording in a car. I know that sounds like a depressing thing, but um, it's out of sheer function. My house is almost done getting repaired. And for those of you that listen on a week-to-week basis will know that this is a huge victory, even though it's taken like two and a half months. But anyways, let's let's talk about the guests. Let's talk about some business, and then I'll, uh, then we'll hang out. So the guest this week is Gray Gordon. He is a solo musician from the Midwest, the Indiana area to be specific. And uh, we'll talk about him and my relationship with him in a minute. So business stuff out of the way. 100wordspodcast.com. Visit the website. Do three things. Actually, just do two things. On the right side of the page, sign up for the email list. I send it out once a week. I'll give you a preview of the guest that is coming that week and uh, just some other context for the conversation that I had with the person. It's a nice little way for us to interact. I, uh, I get some great feedback from people directly on that newsletter. So sign up for it. And then if you're feeling ever so gracious, you can donate to the show in any increment, a dollar. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just something to uh, keep this machine running. And then plus, it just kind of shows the fact that like, yeah, this is worth something to me. I have a direct relationship with you. So I will give you a dollar. Perfect. Digital high five is handed out to you. Anyways, some other stuff that's been on my mind recently. I wanted to express to you fine people. I recently reconnected with an old friend that I had strong emotional feelings for. It's it's one of those things where I don't know if what if it's like for you personally, but for me it's like if I, you know, have this strong emotional connection with a person, then you know, I don't see them for honestly this person I hadn't seen for maybe 3 or 4 years and then seeing them just just brought me right back to that sort of emotional place with that particular person. Before I said goodbye to them, I was like, I hope you know that like the relationship that you and I have created is extremely meaningful to me. And I was like, you know, super sappy. And it sounds like something that a, a drunk person would say, but it really truly did come from my heart and my the pit of my stomach that just feeling, you know, and it was, uh, I don't know, it just, it was nice because I hadn't had that sort of like reaching back in the past memory come bubbling up in quite some time. And it was, uh, it was pretty great. So that was a, that was a fun thing. I'm sick. So if I sound a little bit nasally, I apologize. My kid, that's part of being a father is you get sick all the time because your kid is pretty much sick because you know, their immune systems are weak. So they're getting sick all the time. They passed around the family. So that sucks. But uh, like I said, the positive thing, the house is almost done. And in regards to the show, there's some pretty exciting things happening. And in regards to the guests that I have in the month of April, let me tell you, because April is the third anniversary of this show. And I'm so happy to report that we have some unbelievable guests, people that I just wouldn't expect to want to do this with me, even if they're friends of mine. They'd be like, oh, no, it's cool, busy, whatever. Let me say, April is incredible. I mean, all of these shows are incredible. Let's just let's just be honest, okay? But uh, April is is that much more special. So, anyways, the guest, Gray Gordon. You know, full disclosure, he is on No Sleep Records. I obviously have a business affiliation with No Sleep Records, so you know, let that color your perspective as it will. But uh, Gray was introduced to me via Chris, the owner of the label. He was like, "Hey, there's this this guy who's doing this cool thing in uh, the Midwest," and I listened to it and was immediately like wow, like this is pretty cool stuff. Like he's got, you know, inventive singer songwriter chops and um, it's interesting. I got to know him a little bit more and he, he's just a super unique, creative individual that I wanted on the show. And we'll address this interview. He carries himself as a much older person than he actually is. And he's extremely intelligent in ways that, uh, you know, I don't run across a lot of people that place such an emphasis on vocabulary and word choices and he has a very deliberate process in regards to that. And his music is amazing. If you ever have a chance to watch him live, tell the story in the actual interview. But it was such an emotional experience when I saw him. It was just like, wow, that was so, so good. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Gray. And I will talk to you after the break. Sleep Records. That was my first uh, exposure because I just remember 
I remember Chris playing me your stuff in the office and I was like, I was immediately taken by it. I was like, this is, I was like, this is really well put together and good. Um, and then, you know, he, uh, you know, he started to film me on your story a little bit, then, you know, uh, showing me, you know, like what you look like and everything. I, I presume my reaction is very similar to everybody else's reaction where it's just like, oh yeah, you expect, you know, singer songwriter guy, acoustic person to, uh, not look like you do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's anybody that could react differently to that. So is it one of those things where you, you know how to react to it now, as opposed to like before where it was like, Oh, well, of course, why wouldn't I sound like this? Because this is me. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can't from the jump, like I never could really blame anybody from immediately taking notice of the fact that like my visual aesthetic and the music that I put out are in like some degree of discordance with one another, at least from like, you know, a basic sort of entry level standpoint. Like I think if you know me as a person, it makes perfect sense. But if you're just looking at me and listening to my music, I can understand how people might be like, man, those things at least at first glance seem kind of at odds with one another, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's one of those things too, where it's very, um, I mean, it's immediately engaging because I think you, not only does your, you know, music demand attention, but then people have to reckon with, they have to wrestle with something in their heads of like, Oh, come on. Here's this dude who kind of like, you know, has a, has a street thug vibe <laughs> mixed with like a tattoo art vibe. And then like plays the stuff that's sort of reminiscent of, you know, whatever early two thousands emo with like, you know, mid nineties indie rock. Like, where do I put this in my head? Right. I'm sure in many respects, you're just like, well, that, like you said, that's just a product of who I am rather than a deliberate, like, oh, I, I can't wait to put people off. Yeah, for sure. It's not like I'm trying to like present this dichotomous thing on purpose. It's just that my interests and my tastes are super eclectic, I think, just because of the environment that I was raised in, like personally in my household. And then beyond that, just like living in an era where all things are accessible. I think it's really easy to be into everything. You know what I mean? It's, it's really easy to absorb little pieces from a million different subcultures and sort of like create a pastiche of the stuff that you enjoy. And I just think every individual who makes music or art or just any person that you see walking down the street is obviously going to be a super multifaceted individual. I just think that it's a matter of the uh, sort of duality between my music and my outward appearance is just like a little bit more eye catching. So people maybe like tend to, uh, to gravitate towards that initially. But I think again, like I said earlier, like if you talk to me at length, then it becomes like, it, I, it, I think the pieces fall into place like a little bit more naturally. And yeah. they're like, Oh wait, no, that makes sense. Like now that I actually know who you are as a person, you know? Right. Right. I, I there's, there's something you said in there that I think is very interesting that I honestly, I didn't really, I didn't really consider it. Cause you're, you're 24 years old, 25. Yeah. I'll be 25 in like a week, less than a week or something. I don't know. Next, oh, nice. next Wednesday. Yeah. So less than a week. Sure. Uh, happy early birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Cause yeah, you, you, you are in uh, an age in which you, you can have touch points to everything. So it's just going to be this sort of like weird blender. If I think the the thing is, is like, if you're a curious kid, because I think a lot of kids, you know, like they get, you know, either complacent or they're just they, they once they find their thing that they like, that's kind of like what they stick to. But then there's others that are, you know, such as yourself, I would imagine where it's like, you're just kind of, um, you know, wandering in this, this weird, you know, internet mall sort of place <laughs> of like, I'll take a little bit of uh Japanese anime and then I'll take a little bit of like uh you know like yeah the 90s hip hop aesthetic and then that's me yeah like <laughs> yeah no for sure I think it, it's that and it's just also being like raised in a household where my parents were into just everything dope and like my I mean my dad and my mom split when I was like one and then they both remarried and then my mom remarried a dude who is just the illest guy who's into all the sickest stuff. Like I got into the Smiths because of him. I also got into like the BC boys and rap because of him. And then my dad was like a hardcore kid. So I got into like black flag and crass and like refused and uniform choice and all these bands because of him. But my dad was also a crazy good visual artist. And he also loved like the Pogues and traditional like Irish folk music. So there was just like this huge, just like wash of like influences from an early age, you know, like the same dude who was getting me into refuse was getting me into like Weezer and like the Afghan wigs. And that was when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12, like a super formative age where like I was starting 
to really develop my interests and like was rediscovering all these records that I had like heard growing up because he just played this stuff in the house, you know, like he had just played dead Kennedys or like, you know, whatever band like in the house. I think that initial influence then coming into like when I was a teenager and like, you know, things like Napster and Kazaa and all these things were starting to like emerge onto the scene and the internet was getting fast enough where I could like download like a few songs at a time over the course mm-hmm. of a day. Like already that initial interest that I had had just from like the influence of my parents. Now I could like extend into this like overreaching sort of thing where I could just be like sick. All of this stuff that I had to like go out and buy before and discover in this in this sort of like you know, traditional way, which I val- I still value extremely, but like now I can just go like download songs from all of these bands and like get into everything like to the nth degree. So I think all of those things sort of played a role in like forming, you know, who I have become and like who I, you know, continue to become as I evolve as a person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the point of all of that is the fact that everybody needs that proverbial shepherd or weird dude at the record store mm-hmm. or friend that's into, you know, weird subcultures. Like you need that, that helping hand because, you know, I mean, otherwise, where are you going to find it? Like, it's not, even though you have the vast expanse of the internet, you know, you're not going to, what do you Google weird shit? Like, you know, what? <laughs> yeah. so like, it, it's amazing that because mostly people have that experience, like I said, of a, of a friend or, um, you know, like I said, a weird dude at a record store, you have this whole unique experience of, your parents stuffing that in your head. Cause I think that's generationally speaking, that's uncommon because like I look at my parents, like they weren't, you know, they, they had no influence on any of that stuff as far as, you know, giving me a leg up on like what's, what's quote unquote cool. I, I presume that you've met very few people that have that same experience as you. Yeah. I've met almost, almost nobody who's had that same experience as me. Honestly, right. I, I met yeah. a kid, I toured with a, a dude named Max in Europe a couple years ago, whose dad um, was into like hardcore and thrash and stuff. And that was like, honestly, I think the first guy that I've ever met um, who was like, ha- had any sort of similar experience. Like he remembers seeing his dad, you know, play shows in the nineties and stuff like that with his band. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a unique experience. And it's weird because it was like, my dad was punk as fuck, you know, <laughs> and he's super young. <laughs> like my dad is only 20 years older than me, you know? So he's only, he'll be 40 five this year. Um, so he's, he's a really young dude. I mean, I have friends and peers who are not much younger than him. So it was definitely a a unique experience because it was like, I wasn't rebelling against my parents growing up because they were like ex leftists and like generally like liberal, chill, easygoing people who were just like very supportive of anything that I wanted to pursue. Like if I had come out you know, as trans or something in 2002, when the rest of the world didn't know what the fuck was going on and still doesn't, my parents would have been like, Oh, cool. That's what you're doing. All right, sick. That's, that's who you are. Like there was never any question of like me being exactly who I am and doing exactly what I want to do and being into whatever I wanted to be into. So because my parents were just into cool shit, I didn't feel any need to be like, well, I don't want to be into that. Like, dude, my dad's into uniform choice. That's as cool as it as it gets, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, the, the usual relationship that is obviously forged between, you know, parents and, and, and children is usually that you break off from them because you're like, I don't want to be like them. I want to strive to, you know, make my own path and stuff like that, which I'm sure there was some element of that. But because you had felt like this loving and sort of inclusive environment of just experimenting with weird stuff, uh, less friction with that? Or was there friction in other areas with, with your parents that you had to, you know, kind of navigate? Oh, yeah, there was definitely I mean, I definitely had a tumultuous relationship. I mean, there was all sorts of other factors like there always is in any sort of like home environment. So it it definitely wasn't like, I don't know, it definitely wasn't all just like hugs and butterflies and puppies and chill. And I mean, you know, we were a working class family. Like we, we never had a lot of money. Like I never grew up in like great neighborhoods. Like I wasn't going to get shot or stabbed walking down the street, but I could also like probably find meth, like a few houses down, you know, like I -hmm. just lived in like working class neighborhoods and hung around with working class kids. And like, you know, the home could be a little bit tumultuous sometimes. Like that's a story, you know, better told for, you know, to like a, a therapist probably. But like, um, I had a great, you know, I had a great upbringing in so many senses and I always felt loved and encouraged. But that being said, like 
there is still so many aspects of my upbringing that did cause me to rebel, if not against my parents, just against the sort of conditions that I felt like I was surrounded with because of our income bracket or like just the kids I was surrounded with or, you know, whatever. There being drugs in the home for a while when I was like much younger. I mean, all that stuff got resolved and I have an awesome relationship with my parents right now. But like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that those factors definitely still contributed to me diving even more headfirst into the stuff that my that my dad and stepdad and mom had kind of set me on that course. Like even at the time I was appreciative of of the fact that they got me into all of that stuff. There was still like some degree of just being like, well, whatever, fuck all that. Like, fuck all that established nonsense. Like I'm diving into this head first because at that point my parents were leading like more or less like pretty like normal, like straight ahead lives. Like my dad wasn't still going to hardcore shows or anything. So it definitely made me feel as if like, I'm going to take what they got me into and take it to the limit of what I can do with that, like seeing in that culture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I mean, I, I presume, I presume your, was your mom around the same age as your dad when they had you? Yeah. She, she's a little bit older. She was like six or seven years older, but still pretty, pretty, still pretty young and like not as into the punk and hardcore thing, but still into really cool shit, you know, David Bowie and stuff like that. So, cause yeah, there's definitely a realization, um, that most people have in their lives when they're obviously looking at their, their parents, you realize that not only are they flawed, but they had no idea what they were doing Mm -hmm. when they were raising you. Yeah. Because I, I presume that because of the you know early age of your father was that you were uh, you were uh, quote unquote unintentional as uh, they may <laughs> yeah. say or or was or was that a, or were you uh, intended to come into the world as you did at that time? No, I was I was a total accident. Uh, I, I know that's always a uh, people have made fun of me in the past when I've asked that question, but I'm just like it it paints the whole picture, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> Did you have brothers or sisters or did you have half brothers and sisters because of, of the early divorce? Yeah, all my siblings are half, but I mean, I, you know, that means nothing to me. It's not, you know, it doesn't affect my relationship with them. They're my siblings, like straight up. I have two younger siblings, a younger brother uh, and a younger sister from my mom and stepdad's marriage. And then I have two younger brothers from my dad and stepmom's marriage. So was there, was there a lot of uh, shuffling around uh, houses as you were, uh, you were growing up as far as uh, custody was concerned and stuff like that? Um, kind of, but not really. Like my parents maintained a really good and healthy relationship with each other and still do to this day, like they're friends. Um, so, which is really, you know, obviously not a super common occurrence. So it was never like tumultuous in that respect. It was always, everything was always really respectful and cool. I, I obviously went back and forth from house to house, but I had like a set visiting schedule. I saw my dad on the weekends and that was all there was to it. You know, there was never really any sort of weird confusion in in that regard, fortunately. And then so as you started to, you know, kind of matriculate through high school and started to kind of, you know, dig into that, um, because were you, was it always kind of around the Fort Wayne, Indiana area that you were raised? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I've, I was born and raised here and still haven't left, but I'm like working on that. (laughs) Um, Because the impression that I get of Fort Wayne, I've only been through there once. I mean, it's very much as you illustrated, like a working class town, like sort of, you know, factories, like, I don't know what the the sort of the big industry there is, or is it just uh, kind of a, you know, suburban slash industrial existence? Um, there, there are some military contractors here. Like we have like BAE systems, which is like a big military contractor. Um, Mm -hmm. my now ex stepdad works for a company called Trelleborg that makes like military industrial, like plastic seals. And then growing up, my, uh, grandpa and my dad both worked in a place called Slater steel, which is now like a shutdown steel plant. So it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty industrial and working class. There's also a lot of money here just in like, you know, banking, like we have a big chase bank building here and stuff. So it's not exactly suburban and it's not exactly urban. It's weird. Like Fort Wayne is like a strange mixing sort of like mixing pot of like a very like weird, sort of economically yeah like like poor areas and like really wealthy suburbs and you can like find these things sporadically just sort of like placed here and there throughout the city there's like no dividing line where you're like oh now you're in the hood now you're in the suburbs it's just like these inner the the neighborhoods sort of just like intermingle weirdly it's a really strange sort of upbringing because you could be in like a really nice neighborhood with like a mansion built and designed by like frank lloyd wright and then like walk like three blocks in the other way and like be at a crack house it's just really strange <laughs> yeah well i mean i guess it's kind of interesting from that perspective because then it it, it paints a whole 
whole picture for you as opposed to like the, you know, eight block radius that some kids are used to being raised in. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, like legitimately the house that I lived in was like an over a hundred year old house that was just by like this shitty marathon gas station and like was just like a working class neighborhood. And then legitimately a a few blocks away from me, there was like, it was like four blocks of just these massive mansions. And there was legitimately like a Frank Lloyd Wright designed house. There's like a house over there that looks like a castle that has like sculpted like stone lions, like leading (laughs) up to it. It's insane. And that was right next to me. And I lived in this tiny little house with like five people and like, it was just, it was such a weird juxtaposition. Like I, I think I wrote stuff about it in high school, you know, I like feeling like I lived like on the grounds of like Gatsby or something. It was like so right. weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that is, that is really weird where you're just trying to, yeah. Cause you're not only are you trying to make sense of the world, but then you're trying to make sense of your immediate surroundings and you're just like, this is strange. Yeah. The, the common conception of, you know, life in the Midwest is, you know, isolating because obviously you're not on one of the hotbeds of culture on the coasts. Uh, so did you feel any sense of restlessness in, in the Midwest uh, as you were growing up? Um, not particularly, just because at the time, like we had a really we had a really awesome like punk and hardcore scene locally. Um, I mean, I started going to shows when I was like 12 or 13, and that was mostly just sort of like a, a mashup of like, you know, punk and street punk and like hardcore and like metalcore bands. Uh, and then, um, there was like a really big sort of like Christian metalcore scene that sort of like permeated every nook and cranny of the Fort Wayne scene. And like, it was Christian and non-Christian bands. And I was never like a Christian metalcore kid, but I, I was just kind of known as like the street punk kid in studs and leather that was at the like metalcore shows because I was friends with all those guys. And like, there were like some cool, like, uh, you know, positive and melodic hardcore bands that were in that scene too. So I always felt like a really strong sense of community and involvement. And we're also only like three hours from pretty like major urban epicenters like Detroit. So I could go up and see like hardcore shows in Detroit, or I could go three hours West and be in Chicago and see awesome hardcore shows there. Or Indianapolis has always had like a super awesome music scene and community that I still like play down there and go to shows down there all the time. So I never felt like super cut off from things. Just being so close to Chicago, like really helped. Yeah, no, yeah. You feel like you were at least close enough to, to be a part of something. And that's cool. I, I, I really like, I mean, I've noticed in my years of touring, which I'm sure you have as well, where it's like the, the cities that you play in that maybe have less going on when you go there, it's an event. It's like, yeah. it's, you know, and when I mean event, I don't mean like, you know, an event like, you know, monster truck racing on Sundays or whatever, but like an event where it's like, yeah, the kids that are in attendance of that particular show are excited because you've taken the time and effort to like go there. Yeah, no, totally, man. We had like, we had combat kid through here once and, uh, well, we've had him through here a couple of times, but like there was a, a community center, like kind of in the hood, uh, called anchor community church that my friend, Tony used to run. He played in like a really rad band called saints never surrender. Like they played there all the time. They were kind of like the house band and, uh, like they had combat kid come through. I was probably 17 or 18 and they played in like the big, like upstairs sanctuary room. Like usually there was uh, shows in the basement and it was like packed out, you know, it was like combat kid and life in your way. And like kids were just losing their minds. And anytime we got like a bigger tour package like that, the turnout was just nuts because anybody who was into like hardcore punk, even remotely, like from, you know, basically in a hundred mile radius in every direction, just like drove and like came out and turned out for it. You know, it was really cool. So that aspect of it was always awesome. You also strike me as a type of person where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, through, throughout high school or throughout, you know, I guess in places that you maybe felt, you know, safe in some capacity, you seem like you could kind of get along with anybody. And you seem to be pretty open-minded from that perspective. It's like, you know, even though you do have strong philosophical beliefs from, you know, being vegan and being straight edge, you're, you're non-judgmental in that. Um, was that the case when you were, you know, in high school as well? Well, kind of, I, I think it took years of developing and self-examination to chill out. Um, and I honestly was precisely the opposite when I was younger because I got into drugs and like drinking and and things like that at a really early age. And I didn't actually become straight edge until I was 17. And then I became vegetarian like shortly thereafter and, you know, became vegan. And like, I think when I first got into that stuff heavily and 
and sort of melded those ideas with my pre-existing politics and worldview, it became like a really potent sort of drug for me because I felt as if I was carving out some sense of purpose for myself because I've always felt like really directionless because I'm, you know, I, I, I don't believe in a higher power. I don't really like the world around me. I don't believe in like centralized government, you know? So like all of these things left me feeling really hopeless. And when I discovered a a system of ideals that I felt was like really practical and applicable and personally empowering, I think I got a little bit drunk on that sense of purpose. And for a while I was probably like a super alienating asshole. Uh, but now, (laughs) but now I'm very, I'm super chill because I'm like functionally a nihilist in so far as I'm like, look, every political ideal is going to crumble under like close examination. The world is way too overpopulated to like actually make like create some sort of structure that's going to be sustainable in the long term. Like you just have to basically be a nice person and be as positive as you can and like do things to help out the people in the community around you. And that's the best you can hope for generally, or like go join Greenpeace or something, which I don't have the wherewithal to do. So like, you know, I think I was not always like that. Like I I could always move like pretty fluidly between social groups, but there was definitely a period of time when I was a dick. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I apologized pretty effectively for all those things later and was like, yo, look, everyone, sorry. I was doing a thing. I was discovering some things. I'm chill now. And I still have to kind of shake off that reputation sometimes. Like there's still a contingent of people locally that are just like, man, gray is such a fucking ass. And I can't even really blame him because I was like, you know what? For a long time, I was a huge asshole. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, I mean, it's it's good that you've yeah you felt like you've you know arrived at a sort of truer sense of yourself now than you know than when maybe you know in your thirty or thirty five where it's like yeah sometimes if you've let that go for too long you know, those people won't even take, what not even put you in consideration because they'll just be like, Oh yeah, he was the worst dude for, <laughs> you know, 15, 15 years as opposed to just, you know, two or three years yeah. or whatever. You mentioned obviously getting into, you know, drugs and drinking at that early age. Was that just because of, I guess the ease of accessibility to it and the sort of just like boredom or was it just, was, was it, you were curious? Um, I think it was, yeah, it was easily accessible and I think I was self-medicating before I even realized that I was self-medicating because, you know, I, you know, I have bipolar disorder and, um, when you're hitting puberty and, and you're getting into that age, like those symptoms are sort of rearing their head at that moment. And it's also combined with just the typical weirdness of hitting puberty and like the volatile emotional cocktail of those things made me feel really alienated and mad and depressed. And, you know, I was like, I was very upset that I was in a situation, not just personally at home, but in a situation in a broader sense, um, you know, like placed into this world that I really didn't approve of. And I just didn't have the mental capacity to look that in the face and not self-medicate. So I just spent a lot of time indulging in escapist behaviors because I, I just think that that was the only way at the time that I knew how to cope with a situation that I really just couldn't couldn't confront head on, you know, is this a self-diagnosed uh, like bipolar disorder? Or do, are you currently like medicated? How's the, uh, where, where's it at currently? Um, I'm not medicated for it. Cause I always choose to forego that option. Um, but no, it's not self-diagnosed. Like we got like a pretty good sense that something was going on with me and I had a lot of anger issues and just emotional mood swings that were not typical even of like, you know, a 14, 15, 16 year old kid. And so I ended up seeing like a couple professionals. And at that time I had a pretty good grasp on what was going on with me. And I knew enough people personally that were medicated or treated for depression and manic depression to, to feel like I had a pretty good grasp on that's on what was going on with me personally. And so I basically went in there and was like, Hey, this is what's going on with me. It kind of meets these criteria. Do you agree? And everyone was like, yeah, that sounds like you pretty much have a good handle on what's going on. Um, and it was, you know, it was like a, it was, and still is, you know, and uphill battle, uh, for sure. But, um, you know, in the last two, three years, it's gotten way easier, but yeah, for a while it was like heavy self-medication, heavy escapism. And I I think uh, kind of touching on what I was talking about before, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with why I was so adamantly, you know, vocal about like my beliefs in in a way that was kind of alienating because it imbued me with like a, a sense of purpose and direction 
and a certain degree of escapism from reality, you know, to think like, well, I'm right. Like these things are important to me and I'm right. And if I do my best to propagate these ideas and be vocal about them, it just, it afforded me like a certain degree of, of ability to like, not look at what was like really going on in the world. If I focused on these really sort of on this minutia instead of like looking at the world because it, I just felt like hopeless, but yeah, it's, it's gotten, it's gotten a lot easier to manage in recent years for sure. 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 Well, I, I'm sure there's also, there's obviously an element of, of control. I mean, cause you definitely feel like, you know, as a, as a teenager, when you start to exert these things, and this is speaking more so for myself, but I imagine there's some of that tied up in, in what you were doing where it's like, when you make these decisions uh, to, you know, adhere to some sort of philosophical belief, you feel like you control something where you're mm-hmm. like, all right, this is what I can control. Like I, I don't put these things in my body or whatever. Um, so you feel like that is something you can wrap your head around. Whereas like, you know, I have to go to school, I have to do all these other things and you have no control over. Yeah, totally, man. You know, a, a fast forwarding to, you know, a, a more recent thing that just really struck me about you. So when, uh, you know, we met for the first time in person and when you played Chicago, uh, whatever last September watching you at the beat kitchen, um, it, you know, without too much hyperbole. It was really inspiring for me because you were, you know, there, whatever there, it was, it was an after show for riot fest, a big festival that was going on that weekend. So, you know, it was difficult to bring a lot of people out to the show, but it's like, you know, there was 20 or so people there and, you know, you're used to playing in front of audiences of all sizes, usually more on the smaller end of things. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know. It just, it just, in the way that you, uh, it, it seemed like you, there was a, uh, a specific effort um, to not only obviously explain your songs, but basically to make sure that almost everybody watching you that evening kind of left the room with something. Maybe, maybe it was because I didn't, I, I haven't seen a, a person kind of do what you did in a long time, just to sort of, you know, strip down acoustic, really small show, intimate sort of thing. Um, I presume that's something that is somewhat intentional where it's like, all right, the people that showed up here, like they are um, invested in me in some capacity. Um, And I I know it sounds like such kind of a a cliched thing, like to even ask, but um, I don't know if that goes through your mind at all as you're obviously, you know, touring across the country and playing in front of people. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, first of all, I'm glad that you felt that way. Like it makes me, it makes me feel like I accomplished a goal or I did something positive. And I think that's what it comes down to is just feeling like overall, man, like my worldview is overwhelmingly negative. (laughs) And, you know, I find myself sort of confronted with these really soul crushing concepts about life and the world pretty often. And one of the only sort of bastions of hope that I've ever found is, um, you know, going to shows and, and playing music and listening to music. So when I play a show, especially in an intimate setting like that, where I have the opportunity to talk to people like their people, I just try to take that opportunity every chance I get. I just want everybody to feel included. And, you know, I, I say this a lot when I play live in that setting is I just, I don't want anybody to feel like a spectator because I just think that life is way too short to be a spectator, you know, like be included, be active, be involved. And ultimately I think what punk and hardcore and indie rock and all of these sort of like subcultural groups aim to do is to make people feel like they're included. And I think that sometimes that gets lost somewhere along the way. And I just, I never, I never want to lose that. I always want it to be at the forefront of whatever I do to make people feel as if not only they can do it, but even if they're just there watching me play a show or whatever, like that they feel like they can ask questions and be a part of the conversation, you know? So yeah. that's, it's definitely super important for me. No, that's, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad that that obviously you put conscious thought into that. It's not just to, you know, a rad byproduct of, of who you are as a person. The, uh, it also, it also strikes me too, that, you know, the, the fact that you're uh, engaged in so many different musical endeavors from, um, you know, obviously doing your, your, your solo stuff as, you know, Greg Gordon, and then obviously the, you know, hardcore bands you play in and just kind of the activity that you have from a, a local perspective, it seems like you've always wanted to be like creative within the musical context, but there was never any sort of uh, plan as far as like, oh, like I'm going to quote unquote 
make it, you know, as, as, as being in a band mm-hmm. and being a musician. I mean, obviously that there's, I'm sure a desire there, but there was no, uh, I guess, preconceived notion or plan that, that the stuff you would, is going to reach some sort of national level. Yeah, definitely not, man. I just, I never had like a careerist mentality about it because that just wasn't the scene in which I was birthed. You know, it was just, it was something that you do did with a full understanding of the fact that it was just not feasible to make a living doing it, you know, playing in hardcore bands or black metal bands or whatever I was and am doing now. And even with, you know, even with the solo stuff, it's just like the career aspect of it or the idea that I could make some sort of meager living off of it was totally an afterthought. Like when I first started doing this before I ever signed, you know, with, with no sleep, like I just was self-releasing demos and EPs and stuff. My friends were like, Hey, did you ever consider that you could do something with this, like tour on it or get a label to put it out? And I was like, legitimately, I was like, well, no, I had never thought of that. Like it just, the thought just didn't cross my mind, you know? It's, I mean, even in this day and age where it's like, I, I feel like, you know, bands that obviously start up with, you know, whatever the business plan, management, booking agent, like all lined up before they've even played a show. I mean, it's, it's awesome because bands can do that now and they could have that mentality, like going into it that, Hey, we're going to take this as seriously as possible. But I think there definitely is something to the complete happenstance and accidental success that certain people such as yourself have kind of like walked into rather than this like all right here, let's set up all these dominoes and knock them down you know <laughs> yeah for sure and you you currently uh the the work that you do at home like when you're not obviously touring or or, or doing local shows and stuff you work at uh, the black anvil tattoo shop right yeah, I do. Yeah. I'm the manager there. I'm actually, I'm actually just about to leave my position there and turn it over to somebody else though, just because I of like touring engagements coming up and things like that. I'm gone so much that it's just like, I can't really be there enough to warrant them like continuing to pay me, you know? Right, 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 right. But it seems like you've kind of always set your life up to be, you know, transient in some respects where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I will have the ability to kind of like move around and, you know, explore opportunities and stuff like that. Um, was touring like as you first started to play in bands, was that always something you were immediately attracted to or did you learn to like it or adapt to it in some capacity? I mean, it was, it was definitely something that was always attractive to me as an idea. And then as I'm sure you realize, like once you're confronted with the reality of touring, you understand like, Oh man, this isn't always super fun. And sometimes it's like downright soul crushing, but there's definitely just an aspect of it that remains super attractive to me. It's just the idea that every night you can be in a different city with a totally different group of people, you know, like just relating to people, like just doing the most basic thing that you can do is like just going to what essentially amounts to being like a social function where everybody has equal opportunity to exchange ideas. Like I know it's like a super cliche, like punk rock notion to, to get stoked on stuff like that. But I mean, legitimately, that's just one of the only things that I get excited about in life. So yeah, the touring thing just, as it slowly started to become a reality, I don't know, it was the culmination of many years of like fantasy colliding with reality. And now I I feel pretty at ease with the idea. And like, yeah, I like being home so I can be around my girlfriend and my friends. But like, I also just love the opportunity to like get out and just be humbled by the fact that even like 10 people come to see me play like stupid songs that I wrote in my bedroom, you know? Right, right. right. You're like, this is weird that this is even happening. Exactly. Yeah. Which I, you know, that was honestly one of the reasons what compelled me to speak to you as well, because I think a lot of people um, that have not only the conception of touring, but just like, you know, being uh, in a band, when you have a good head of steam going for yourself, sometimes it's hard to kind of get that perspective and align yourself. And so I think that's what it's, it's awesome for you because you've been able to kind of, you know, sort of gradually build to where you're at now, as opposed to like all of a sudden, like there's a sudden explosion. And then, you know, a year from now, no one's going to care about what you're doing at all. Um, which I'm sure, I'm sure obviously is gratifying in, in some respects where you feel like there's, there's at least some momentum going forward. Yeah, for sure. It's like a weird balance too, you know, like being bipolar obviously doesn't help anything as far as my, <laughs> totally. cons- my consistency emotionally, um, you know, or my perspective on my, on my life and where I'm at personally. But like, there are days when I wake up and I'm like, holy shit, I'm about to be 25. I live on a couch you know, I, I played a show a few months ago in Savannah, Georgia and got paid $11. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> right. And then there are other, there are other days when I wake up, wake up and I'm like, you know, 
even a few hundred kids give a shit about the fact that I'm making this music, that I'm doing this, I should, I owe it to myself to at least give it my all. And if it fails miserably, like at least I tried. So, you know, it goes back and forth between that and the, the whole like slow build aspect, like is at once simultaneously kind of frustrating. Cause I'm like, fuck, I want to like do, I want to do bigger tours. I want to like, I want to reach more kids. I want to be able to stay out with this stuff. And on the other hand, it's like, well, there's less at stake too. You know, it's not like, Oh man, if this album doesn't do well, I'm fucked. It's like, Oh, well, if this album doesn't do well, then it's the same as everything else that I've ever done. So who cares really? <laughs> right. Right. It's that concept that it's like the, cause you know, whatever the, the old adage of it takes you an entire lifetime to write your first record and then 18 months to write your second record. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily apply to you because it's like, well, when the moment strikes, that's when I feel like I'll be able to release not only more music, but then not have these external business pressures influencing the art that I'm creating. Yeah, for sure, man. Something that also, uh, you know, has, has struck me about you and I've joked with you about it over text before in regards to, uh, you carry yourself as a much older person. Like, you know, you would, uh, not only I, I, I define you, uh, as very eloquent, uh, you're well-spoken. Yeah. I think you, uh, the way that, you know, you present yourself online and the way that you communicate on social media, it's, you know, it's very thoughtful, but yet also is real. Like I could tell it's not you just trying to be, you know, a 17 year old that just tripped onto a thesaurus, you know, cause that, that I, I, I could, pl- I say that because that was definitely me. I find it interesting because I don't think that's what a lot of people, I don't know, I guess strive to be like either well-spoken or, um, you know, well-educated. Cause I mean, you didn't go, you didn't go to college at all. Right. No. I mean, I went for like a semester and ultimately just decided like, holy shit, uh, institutional academia is like really repulsive to me at the age of 19. I'm going to go work in a comic book store instead. <laughs> right. Right. That's a better option. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, obviously you're not going to college, but like, I, I don't know, like I, it's just, I find it less and less a, like I said, a priority for, for people. And so that's what I, has always, you know, endeared me to you as well, where I'm just like, that's, that's good because I think that's, that's a value that I think sometimes gets, I wouldn't even say gets lost on younger people, but just people of all ages where it's like, you'd be amazed at what, uh, a well uh, oiled presentation of a person can do like that. That will give you credibility. That will make people take you seriously just by using words that kind of <laughs> elevate a conversation. I don't know if, if that's, uh, your experience as well, but I don't know what kind of, uh, what, what makes you interested in that? I think again, it was just like my upbringing. My, my parents were literate. My mom actually now she was, she's been basically going to school for my entire life, um, in some capacity. Uh, she like went for interior design and then she was like, oh, I'm not really into that. And then ultimately, uh, she ended up getting her master's in, in English lit, uh, in creative writing. And, mm-hmm. um, my dad didn't go to college, but he was always extremely literate. There were books around. So I just grew up in a home where reading was, right on par with any sort of media that we were consuming, whether it be video games or film or whatever. It's just, I had, I had parents that were files of all sorts. Like my, my stepdad is like a, is like a cinema file and a heavy reader, you know, my dad, huge record collection. So the reading thing and the the thirst for knowledge, I think was just imbued from an early age, just by, you know, having parents who were like, Hey, being smart and being educated is the best weapon that you have against external forces that are going to try to hold you down. I mean, it helps you from your circumstances where it's like, you know, oh, dude with tattoos in his face, like, what does he have to say? Like, give me a break. And then it's like, you can come out as a, you know, thoughtful, intelligent, sensitive person, like all of these, these emotions or qualities in a person that are sort of, you know, antithetical to what a you know guy with tattoos on his face is on his face may uh inspire they'd be like oh yeah well that dude, that dude's been to prison like no <laughs> he's not gonna have anything to say yeah it's it's weird because again it's just this like dichotomous thing where it's like people are like well people with tattoos on their face are probably probably convicted criminals and on one hand it's just like well, you're right. It was just a misdemeanor, but yes, technically I am a convicted criminal, but also (laughs) like, you know, I'm really into Dostoevsky and like these things can coexist. And just because like I'm prone to unreasonable bouts of anger, doesn't mean that I'm not also like a sensitive, empathetic person who gives a fuck about things that are going on in the world. And it's just like people, 
have the tendency and so do I, because it's, you can't live in the world otherwise, but people have the tendency to be like reductionist. You know, you just reduce things to their lowest common denominator because you're bombarded with so much information at any given moment that it's impossible to do anything else. You see somebody in a stupid fucking hat and you're like, I don't want to talk to that guy. He's wearing a stupid hat. You know, whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, people see me and they're like, that guy has fucking face tattoos, like, and is wearing Tim's like, I don't want to talk to that guy. He's a thug. You know, I don't expect anybody to like, I'm never, I'm never offended when somebody thinks that is a violent criminal who I don't want to know. I don't expect them to think like, oh, he's, you know, he's probably reading gravity's rainbow right now. Like nobody, I don't need anybody to think that about me, but anytime that I'm presented with opportunity to shatter those expectations, I do revel in it. And I'm like slyly noticing people's shock and awe when I first open my mouth and like chuckling inside a little bit. Right. Right. I, I love that. I love, I love the, I, I remember this is such an anecdotal story, but I think one you'll get a kick out of, like, I remember when I was whatever, 19 years old or maybe even 20, but I was, I had this idea where I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to paint my nails black and such a, a, even though at that time that was not very edgy, it was edgy for my persona. I was like, all right, I'm going to paint my nails black and you know, I'll do that for like a year and I'm going to see the way that people, not so much like people, you know, my, my surrounding uh, peers and friends, but you know, people at, you know, the grocery store or whatever, you know, transactional relationships I'm having. And it it was so funny to see people look at me, be like, oh, so that, that guy's that person. And then me turn around and be, you know, completely nice. And like everything that you're talking about as far as shattering expectations. And I was just like, it's so funny where it's like just the littlest of things can put you in a corner and then you subvert that expectation. And then that person is for that moment, change their opinion of people with black nail polish or people with face tattoos or whatever. <laughs> like, Yeah, for sure. And it's like, I don't, I, I totally relate to that. I, you know, I don't have any sort of grandiose intention, like, well, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to act in this way to shatter these expectations. It's just like, well, no, these are all just legitimate equal parts of who I am as a whole. And like, yeah, I have face tattoos, but also like I hold doors for people and like say, yes, ma'am. And no, ma'am, you know, like that's just, that's just how I am. Like I'm amicable. I'm an amicable person, you know? It's so it's just, I think for more, for me, it's more like I take joy in it because I, I like the idea of like being a provocateur <laughs> to some extent. And like, I've liked, I like provocateurs historically, you know, like people who like, you know, whoever, Andy Kaufman or whoever, like people who are in the constant state of trolling right. other people. And <laughs> right. I feel like, I feel like being as dichotomous an individual as I, as I am, at least at first glance, like I am trolling everybody and I just take great joy in it. I don't know why it's probably being the older brother of four younger siblings. Like I just antagonizing people is just one of my favorite things to do. Right. Yeah. It's, it's built into your, uh, to your persona. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the last thing I want to hit on kind of, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. Um, because uh, they're obviously in, in the day and age of, of where we're at, where everybody has a voice and everybody can throw criticism and uh, shade on everybody on the internet. What's the what's the most common thing that you uh, I guess you you encounter in regards to people having problems or issues with you beyond like what you were alluding to earlier with you know people saying you're an asshole when you were younger? Um, you know, are there people that just kind of you know drop onto your Twitter and are just like, you know, a, you're a poser or like what, what sort of, uh, what sort of interactions do you have? Cause I, I'm sure it's like people immediately form not only an opinion of you, uh, but just, you know, with the way that, that the internet is structured, it's easy to just hurl criticism at you. Yeah, for sure. I think I dodge some internet criticism because if you don't know me, you might think that I'm a violent criminal. So they're like, man, I don't want to risk this dude coming to my city and like, you know, like lighten me up, which in all actuality wouldn't happen, you know, but I think there's some degree of like people being like, "Eh, I won't fuck with that guy too much, even though in in reality, I'm I'm a huge wuss. But like, I, I think what I catch most on the internet is that people don't understand that I don't take myself seriously. So some of the shit that I say is just taken out of context completely and people get really offended by it or they're like, man, this guy has this really grandiose image of himself or he just thinks he's always right. And it's like, 
no, dude, not at all. Like I, I think that everything that I'm into is a hilarious caricature of itself and that existence is cosmically meaningless. And I'm just cracking jokes, you know, like ultimately like everything that I do, like I do smirkingly to an extent, <laughs> you know, like <Right. laughs> even, even if it's shit that I'm stoked on, like, you know, straight edge or whatever, like I understand how goofy youth of today is, even though I have a youth of today tattoo, you know right. what I mean? I, and I think just most people don't maybe don't have the ability or their interest to like be self-aware enough to allow themselves that sort of insight. So like they're observing me through the same lens that they're probably observing themselves where they take things that they like very seriously, where I'm just like, yeah, man, you know, like straight edge is dumb, but I'm super stoked on it. And veganism is never going to change the world, but fuck it. I'm not, I'm not going to eat animals anyway, you know? And like, I, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm very, I'm, I'm doing everything like winkingly, but just, I think it's super lost on people. So people just think I'm being a dick and I'm not really being a dick. I'm just cracking on myself and everyone and everything, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not personal. Like, I guess the way that I would summarize it is like, I can be friends with a dude, like in a social setting, I could, I could run across a dude who's like rocking a fedora and who's like really into my little pony or whatever and be totally amicable and like find things that we have in common and like hang out and chill. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to like flame that stuff because it's hilarious. Just like all of the stuff that I'm into is hilarious. Just like I like corn and that's fucking hilarious. You know, I think ultimately, and maybe this is just me projecting like my own flaws and saying, well, it ain't me. It's everyone else. But like, I just think people take themselves and everything too seriously. And if you take life seriously, then you might think that I'm a, a dick and maybe you're right. And I really, am but i don't know that's for that's for me to you me to know and maybe you to find out <laughs> yeah exactly like i can't say man i'm you know i'm i can't i can't say objectively who's right and who's wrong but ultimately i think the same people online who are like that guy's a fucking joke if they just met me and like had five minutes to just hang out and talk they would probably be like oh that guy's like a pretty nice well-rounded guy actually never mind right right, right. no for sure I, and i i think that's ultimately what people uh, walk away from when they see you perform live. It's just that, you know, all those feelings that we were talking about earlier, coupled with the fact that it's like, you know, we're just, we're just two people having a connection, hopefully. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the time, Gray. I, uh, this, this was different than a lot of the other conversations because it kind of went on more sort of uh, larger topics, but I, I really appreciate your insight and all this stuff. Yeah, dude, I'm super stoked that you had me on, man. I uh, I love just getting an opportunity to like converse about life and real stuff, and I, I like that it wasn't two directional. That we just got to like talk about stuff. Like, I don't get the opportunity to just sit down and talk about things, and uh, and hopefully have a few people listen and like get a little insight into like what I'm into and like what I'm about. And it's just cool to like have a conversation with somebody that I see eye to eye with on on some things. So it's yeah, it was been it's been awesome, dude. Well, I'm I'm very glad, Gray. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. I will talk to you soon. So there you go. There was Gray. There was our conversation. It was a long time coming because I told him back in September of last year that I'd have him on the show. But um, yeah, needless to say. But the producer, as always for this show, is Tom Richfield, my forever friend and linked to me no matter what. That's the way he's always going to be. And visit 100wordspodcast.com. Drop the show an email, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, I look forward to reporting to you next week with another fun conversation. Until then, be safe, everybody. <laughs>